Hi, my name is Brandon Duong, and you're listening to My City So White I Moved on Shelter Force. Both Seattle and Washington, D.C. have witnessed a large exodus of black residents over the last several decades as housing costs have risen. In 1970, 75% of residents of Seattle's Central District were black, compared to just 15% today. Washington, D.C., long nicknamed Chocolate City, has seen a decline of 7.5% in its black population since 2000. In her new poem, Our City Still, Carlin Newhouse examines and compares the rapid gentrification that has taken place in the two cities she's called home, pointing it out as just the latest development in a long history of segregation and geographic racism. Newhouse is a poet, host, performer, and educator. She's a national Young Arts finalist, the only three-time Youth Speak Seattle Grand Slam champion, and ranked fourth in the 2020 Women of the World Poetry Slam. Her work has been featured on platforms such as Button Poetry, The Seattle Globalist, The Kennedy Center, and more. I sat down with Newhouse to discuss her inspirations for her poem, as well as her thoughts on gentrification, racialized spaces, and navigating ideas of community when that community continues to change. Carlin, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to interview me. I was super excited and honored to um, have my work be considered. Y'all are doing some really good work. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. But yeah, I, I guess, you know, to, just to jump into your poem, you know, I wanted to ask, you start off your piece by talking about Seattle, right? And specifically how white it is. What was it like for you growing up there as a black girl in the 2000s and then moving to D.C., you know, a city with a much larger black community? Absolutely. It was very different. So growing up in Seattle, I was typically the only black girl in my classes, typically the only black person in the room a lot of the times. Seattle is a very predominantly white area, over 70% white, depending on the area that you're in. So I was grateful to grow up. My mom's from Alabama. My dad's from South Central LA. Um, So I was grateful to grow up in a family that like really reinstated and made space for all of me um, and all of my blackness um, and my sister as well. But going out into the world was very different. You know, people with the me and I got a lot of like microaggressions and the type of racism you experience in Seattle is uh it's interesting because it's all cloaked in like this uh liberal kind of niceness but none of it's really uh authentic um so growing up and having like teachers you know walk by and play in my hair or you know types of jokes and experiences I would have in racist casts that I would be in um and just a lot of it was ignorance willful or otherwise um so I never really felt like I belonged I had a really hard time in school um because I experienced a lot of bullying and peer harassment so I just never really felt like I fully fit in um I was grateful to be able to join poetry communities in Seattle that allowed me to be able to like be myself so I lived in a suburb called Federal Way um but when you um, go about 20 minutes north into Seattle, you get to encounter a lot more people of color. And Seattle has a big, you know, community of Asian immigrants and as well as Hispanic folks. And so I started to see people who looked like me and people who looked other than me, but were all existing in the space of like, what does it mean to be a person of color in this like predominantly white space? Um, And so being able to be in those communities and have those conversations and feel seen and feel heard, um, it was like a little place for me to escape, even if it was just for a weekend before I had to go back into like uh, all the whiteness of school and in the regular workplace right so then when I moved to DC um, I had a mentor in Seattle who was a graduate of uh, Morehouse and so he was encouraging me to look into some HBCUs um, and when I got into Howard he's like that's where you're going so I came out here and 
it was a whole new world. Um, like I said in, in the poem, saw a town full of brown, like it was just all these black people everywhere. And it was people who looked like me and people who looked other than me and, you know, fat folks and skinny folks and people with blue hair and people with blonde hair and tall and skinny and just people and black folks from across the diaspora, especially at Howard. You had black folks that were black American, but you also had folks that were coming from Nigeria, from Ethiopia, from France, from England. Um, folks were from everywhere, but all were connected by this like unified experience of blackness. It was the first place I ever felt home. It was the first place I ever felt like I could be myself. And I felt normal growing up in Seattle. I always felt other. And this was a space where I was able to not only feel normal, but start feeling beautiful, start to love and embrace my blackness um, and get to just yeah, just just be myself. Um, I was always like um grateful and to grow up in a household that like promoted me like being proud in my racial identity. Um, but to be in a whole city that was proud of its racial identity uh, was super empowering. And I'm just grateful to have been able to have that experience. And going to Howard, uh, the mecca is just a uh, yeah, it was just powerful. Yeah, totally. I felt the same way when I moved to Chicago. I lived in this neighborhood called Argyle, which is a Vietnamese community. Mm. Um, uh, I grew up in the suburbs, too, so I really relate to what you're saying. I wanted to ask, like, you know, how do you think race affects how people interact with and within certain spaces and communities? Do you think that white people who live in white neighborhoods understand how black people view black neighborhoods? Um, That's a great question. I don't think so. And I think the only reason I would say that um, is because whiteness and the way that it's centered, especially in predominantly white spaces, um, is this is the norm. Um, so it's not something that is like a, a blessing to enter into when you're constantly um, being in spaces. Sort of like, uh, let's say, speaking English, right? You're constantly around people who speak English. Um, and then you go someplace and somebody speaks Spanish. Yeah, that's a, a new space that you never appreciate being around all of this English until you're in a space that, you know, is, is otherwise same thing if you speak um, Swahili and then you go into a community that people speak French. It's like, oh, I didn't really realize I was around <laughs> all these people that were like me. Um, and so um, the way that whiteness is um, normalized and centric um, here in American states, particularly, you're just normal. Um, you don't consider that you're outside of the other. You don't consider that, you know, people are feeling ostracized or feeling um other than to be able to be a black person in predominantly white space, you're constantly aware of your race. When you're existing in whiteness, you're not consist existing in a space where you're constantly thinking about race and racial identity, right? Um, you're just thinking about existing. You're going to your soccer games. You're going to class. You're cooking for your family. You're, you know, experiencing even real world problems like mental health and, and poverty and different things like that. Um, but it's never always centered around race rather than on um, being black or being a person of color. Um, you're constantly thinking about how your race racialization in this country impacts how you walk through the world and how people see you and how people interact with you. Um, and it's different. Um, so I think when you're a black person um, and when you're a person of color, you're constantly moving through the world um, thinking about how your race is, is it precedes you. Um, your race precedes you as you go into a space rather than um, I think white people when they're, you know, in spaces that are predominantly white. It's like, oh, I'm just, you know, a person. I'm just around rather than I'm a white person, being a black person, or being a Vietnamese person, or being, you know, a, a Hispanic person, when your race is always the thing that precedes you in space, it changes the way that you are able to, like, interact in the world just as a person. You have to constantly think about um, all the complexities and the layers of how you move through the world. So I think it's surprising for white folks more so when they go into um, spaces 
that are other rather than when they go into spaces that are like them. In the reverse, as people of color in predominantly white spaces, you know, it's a blessing to enter into a space um, where you're, you're around people that look like you because it's a rarity, um, especially depending on where you live. Out here on the East Coast, you have a lot more racial diversity than when you're on the West Coast. Where were you in life when you wrote this poem? Was there a moment that inspired this poem for you? Absolutely. Um, life inspired the poem <laughs> first. Um, but particularly, I wrote the poem um, during the peak of the pandemic. So, you know, I've been living in Seattle my whole life. I came out here for school and then the pandemic hit the middle of my sophomore year here at Howard um, and everybody had to go back home. So I went back to Seattle for about a year before I moved back to D.C. And when I moved back to Seattle, I was hyper aware of the ways that whiteness dominated and changed the spaces I was in because I had been in this super powerful pro-black space for so long. But furthermore than that, there's a section within the city of Seattle called the Central District. In the poem, you'll hear me call it the CD um, in different moments. Um, the Central District is the only predominantly black neighborhood in the Northwest historically. So due to redlining in Washington, where black people could only live in certain parts of the city, um, this is the only place black people could legally live. Um, and so it's a beautiful, thriving black area full of, you know, amazing co-ops and, and restaurants and artistry and hubs, cultural hubs um, where black people could just go and love on each other and be safe. Um, and I loved going to the Central District when I was growing up and when I was um, in, you know, arts communities out there, because that was like the getaway spot. That was where black folks got to go and, and just be themselves. Um, and when I came back um, to Seattle, and every time I go back to Seattle now, um, I see more and more of the gentrification that's happening to that area. So places that used to be, you know, safe spaces for Black folks um, there, you know, are being torn down and are, you know, being renovated and creating into new condos and, you know, coffee shops and hipster bookstores and all these different things. Um, weed dispensaries being built in the area where Black people are historically and still are in jail for marijuana cases in Seattle, but now you can go and buy weed from this dispensary, um, and it's in this predominantly Black neighborhood that has been over-policed and, and dealt with violence and, and racialization for so long, right? So as I've seen the gentrification continue to happen to that area that I used to love so much, I started looking at the parallels between what was happening to the Central District in Seattle and what was happening out here in D.C. Because while I came to D.C. and was super, like, excited about all the, the blackness that I saw, I started getting to have conversations with D.C. natives who were like, yo, this place ain't what it used to be. This building didn't used to be here. And, you know, these folks that used to own this home got pushed out. Um, and so much, especially around even Howard University um, that used to be owned by black families and business owners um, getting pushed out by new condos and Whole Foods and stuff that you just never used to see. And the gentrification continues to evolve in both places. I started thinking about how even though I came from this predominantly white space, there was this black um, haven within this community and that's being destroyed. Um, and here in this predominantly black space, that is now being taken over by whiteness as well. Um, and to have grown up in Seattle and so much of my, you know, life be based in that space, um, but to have loved and fallen in love with this city here in D.C., I wanted to talk about how both my experiences with those places have been different, um, but how these communities are being impacted um, and how even in the midst of all this gentrification that's happening, um, Black people are still holding on to these cities. You still see people that are, you know, not letting go, go die. And you see folks that are, you know, still holding on to, you know, just spaces that have been historically safe for us. Um, and I wanted to be able to bring attention to that um, and to have those conversations. 
there's a, a part in the poem that says Washington, D.C. and Washington State are opposite sides of the same coin. Like um, we're both experiencing similar things. We're just experiencing them in different places. Um, and how do we look at how gentrification is impacting everything and how as black people we still have to be able to hold on how as people of color we still have to be able to you know be proud of our communities and hold on to them and fight for them um because we're the only people that are going to do it are there any aspects about gentrification that you think aren't mentioned or talked about as often something that we don't highlight as much is the like inherent violence that is within gentrification the ways that gentrification tears away at those spaces and breaks apart communities is harmful and violent. It's hard to not be able to be around your family anymore because you got to move out to Maryland or to Virginia or in Washington State, move out to Puyallup or wherever. You got to move out to be able to afford to even stay anywhere nearby. Um, like that's hard to be ripped away from your family in that way. Um, but when we also talk about like Wealth um, and land ownership being one of the primary foundations of wealth in this country outside of black bodies, right? Wealth in this country is connected to land. And for black people to finally own land, wherever that was, regardless of the, the redlining that happened, you own something. You had a piece of something you could pass down to your children here in, in D.C. It wasn't just, you know, the, the buildings and the, the connections that were happening around it. It was the homes that were there. It's the community you built, the wealth that you could potentially pass on to your young folks. When you you have developers come into those communities and be like, hey, you know, we'll buy this property from you for X amount um, and you got to be out within the next six months um, and people sell these buildings in, in these these homes that have been in their families for so long and they sell them because you have so much, you know, financial trauma and debt and, and it's a lump sum of money that you can use to better yourself in the immediate moment right but then those developers take that home that they sold you for x amount of money and they turn it into a high-rise condo that now they're charging three thousand dollars for a studio apartment right and seeing that they're not making space for those same communities that they bought the land from to then live in that community. You have this new high-rise condo that's full of residents that look nothing like the original population of the people that live there, right? And so it's tearing away from communities as far as connection on a personal level, but also um, on, a, on a financial level as far as being able to have land ownership, to be able to have wealth, to be able to have space to pass on to your, to your peoples, to convert that whole community into a space for whiteness to occupy. Um, um, it, it's devastating and it's heartbreaking, especially as um, black folks, to be um, coming from a space where you came from, not having anything to finally having something and to have that be taken over. Um, there's less and less places where you can afford to be a person of color in this country. Like You have to continue to move out and to move out um, and to continue to have those spaces be um preyed upon um there's just a violence to that um that people don't really talk about um people talk about how look how much safer this community is now and look how prettier it is and this is that and the third but you don't talk about you know how now you have black people that live in that community that are getting the police called on them for playing music too loud right um and, and people who have been selling you know maybe plantains and on the street for the last five years now they're getting shut down for not having a vendor's license um all these things that happen um that tear away from the communities and the fabrics that have already been like built there um and how it's necessary for us to fight for those spaces because it's not just about um being able to have 
you know, community for people to connect and physical space for people to come in and love on each other. It's also about being able to have wealth redistribution. It's also about being able to have a space for you to be able to just exist um, and not be constantly hyper vigilant and aware and having to constantly respond to whiteness, even within your own spaces. As I was watching your poem, I saw that there were some comments at the bottom saying things like, oh, are you advocating for segregation? As we know, the U.S. is still a very segregated society due to a long history of government-sponsored segregation. What are your thoughts on the ties between segregation, gentrification, and the roles that ethnic enclaves and neighborhoods uh, play in today's society? Absolutely. I think the conversation centers around power who has it, um, and those who are in power are the ones who get to make the decision-making, right? Um, when it comes to segregation, um, <laughs> it's interesting to me when you see folks be like, are you advocating for segregation? And, you know, why this is the problem that we have in the world because folks want to be separated, right? Um, historically, <laughs> segregation um, in this country was about people who were in positions of power, you know, white folks, predominantly cishet white men in positions of power, um, creating a system that did not allow black people people of color um to go into other spaces with white folks um and it was about disenfranchising people of color it was about oppressing them it was about making sure you had less access to resources um to to safety to all of those things right um and how that decision was made solely by those communities based off of their comfort levels. Um, we don't want to have this type of person in my community. I don't feel safe. Um, it's going to bring down the property value. It's going to whatever, right? When people's response to folks fighting against gentrification is, oh, you want to segregate spaces. First of all, um, these spaces were historically segregated. <laughs> we're starting there. Um, so, and two, to think about how do we allow for folks to continue to like love and interact with each other um, in a powerful and intentional way. We have to think about who has a seat at the table to be able to make that decision making. Um, if we want to be able to have communities where folks are able to share, you know, different cultural experiences, that's fine and that's beautiful and that's powerful if they are the ones that are allowed to sit at the table and assist in those decision making. But that's not what happens with gentrification. What happens with gentrification is you have people who have money and power come in and take over communities um, by financial force, right? Um, and you're not getting to consent to be in decision making about how that impacts your community. Um, so I think when we're having these conversations, we have to be very intentional with our language. Um, we have to be very intentional with our history, right? And look at where does these predominantly people of color communities come from? Why do they exist in that way? Um, and also remember that it is necessary for people of color to have safe spaces to go to. It's necessary for people of color to be able to have land ownership, to be able to have communities to be able to exist in. Because um, if we wanted to have the whole country just, you know, everyone's together and there's no separation whatsoever, that would be great if people of color and immigrants and et cetera, et cetera, had access to those spaces in the same way. But you don't. You go into predominantly white neighborhoods and black people either can't afford to live there or you'll see people who just won't sell homes. There's a story um, that I had to find the article of, but it was about um, this family that was trying to sell a home and they were having really hard, um, like a really hard time selling it. Um, and what they decided to do was just do a little study and they removed any type of indicators that black people lived in the household, so family pictures and quotes and things like that. Um, 
the sales started happening exponentially um, and the the rates that people were willing to like offer to buy the house increased, um, which is to say when you see certain communities um, and further than communities, when you see um, people who give ba- loans at banks and et cetera, right? People who are like uh, willing to discriminate against black people and people of color in a way that is not overt racism, but is a way to like, continue to disenfranchise people of color. Um, So I do not advocate for segregation. I do advocate for a safe space for people of color to be able to love on each other, to be able to just exist within themselves. Um, And I advocate as well for any people that want to be able to move into different communities. But the historic reality is these are communities that existed um, because there was no other safe and affordable place for people to live. Therefore, how can we protect the history of this space? Um, How can we honor the ancestors that made space for us to continue to exist? exist and love on each other um i want to make sure and i think that as like in community we want to make sure that we honor our ancestors that we honor the people that came before us um just as people want to be able to you know honor cultural background that is important to them i think it's important for us to be able to hold on to what belongs to us um and make sure that our studies are still ours carlin thank you so much for talking to me today this was a great interview i loved hearing your thoughts on everything um, you know, before we end the interview, I just wanted to ask, do you have any upcoming projects that you'd like to plug or any social media? Yes. Um, my name is Carlin Newhouse. That is C-A-R-L-Y-N-N. Um, Newhouse. I used to say like the brand new house I'm going to get once I graduate, but I recently graduated from Howard University. You can follow me there on all social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, if you see a Smurf with the blue hair, that's me. I have some upcoming projects that will be dropping, some some videos, some websites that will be dropping. I have some workshops and things that will be coming in. Those will all be updated on my social media. I host poetry open mic here in Washington, D.C. at Bus Boys and Poets every third Friday. So if you live in Washington, D.C. or if you are around the area and you want to come and hang out, um, come through third Fridays at Bus Boys and Poets. And yeah, feel free to connect with me. I have a lot of upcoming events and slams and things I'll be at, but I'm always open to bookings to be able to connect with young people. I'm a youth worker, um, and, and that's where my heart is, is working with young people of color. So um, if you're looking for somebody to come and work with your young folks to do workshops, to do a performance, definitely feel free to reach out yeah, I'm just super grateful that I've been able to have this opportunity to be able to come and to talk with you guys. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time with the beautiful questions, for reaching out, for taking the time to watch my poem. I really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, if you want to check out any of my work, you can check that out on my Instagram or on YouTube. Feel free to connect. Feel free to love. Um, I love being able to have conversations with folks about artistry, about social justice, about youth work, about how do we make uh, safer spaces. Um, something I say in one of my bios is that um, I use poetry as a tool for activism and awareness and hopes of making the world a safer space and that's all we're trying to do out here so thank you so much for the time i really appreciate it um, and i look forward to being able to see all the work that's going to continue to come out um so thank you thanks for listening for more stories like this visit us at shelterforce.org